You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Glad you are here this morning and uh, that you're with us. And let's say thank you to our guys for leading us in worship for just a second, if we can. And uh, I'm so glad that you're here today. Um, And good morning to you. Would you please open your Bible to Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. And before we read our text for today, um, we have a new memory verse. And uh, we, we memorize one verse per month as a church. And this is the first month, our first week in February. So we're going to begin a new verse this morning. And it's, uh, it's going to be on the screen. Um, we're going to be reciting it each week. And we meditate on this verse each week, hopefully in your own individual lives. And uh, today's verse, this month's verse, comes from the book of Nehemiah. And it says this, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Can you guys say that out loud? Okay, wonderful. And... I want to explain, if you could, keep your finger in the book of Luke and then turn in your Bible back to, to the book of Nehemiah, okay? First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, right before Esther, Esther, uh, Nehemiah chapter eight. I, I want to just take a few moments before we get into our actual text, and I want to, I want to explain this to you, because we're going to be looking at it briefly all month, okay? I want to read um, verses 1 through 12, and uh, what's happening here is uh, Israel, God's people, had disobeyed. They had been disobedient uh, to the Lord over and over and over, and, um, and God had uh, sent them into exile uh, to where they were slaves and mistreated and almost as if God had forgotten about them. Um, God calls them back. In the book of Ezra, they rebuild the temple, the place of worship. And in the book of Nehemiah, they rebuild the city. Okay, so those are two consecutive um, stories. Uh, Sometimes the the, the books of the Bible are not in regards to timeline, because sometimes books fit in within other books. So it would be hard to kind of cut a book halfway, put another book in there, and then re-pick up another book. So these two books, though, Ezra and Nehemiah, are consecutive in their timeline. And in the book of Nehemiah, as they're returning, at this point, the priest, Ezra, is going to be reading from the book of the law to re-establish the commands of God among the people so that they would begin to follow God again. And they have a certain response after hearing the book of the law. And so, Let's, uh, let's read this, verses 1 through 12, and just 
talk about it briefly for a second this morning. And all the people gathered as one. This is verse one of chapter eight. <coughs> as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and all who could understand. So you think I preach long. And the ears, and here's some encouragement for you. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they made for this purpose. Sounds like preaching, huh? And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseah, and on his right, Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Heshum, Hashbanadab, Zechariah, Meshalem, on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Juzbad, Hanan, Peliah, and the, Le uh, the Levites helped the people to understand the law. They helped them to understand while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's what preaching is. We read from the book of the law, and I help you give the, I help give the sense so that you understand what, what you're reading. That's all that preaching is. If you, if you go to some place where it's anything other than just reading from the book and explaining what it means, don't go back to that place, okay? This is, what we, this is the only thing that we do. Verse nine, the Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Look at this. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. The reason why they're weeping is because they're reflecting in light of what God's word is saying on all the years of their disobedience. It's convicting them of their sin. And it's showing them all the years in which they've been disobedient to God. It's reminding them of all the years. They have just come back from exile. And as they're reading this, as they're hearing the word of God, they're saying, we've missed the mark there. 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 And over and over. And so they're weeping in light of their sin. But during this season, Ezra and Nehemiah are coming back to bring restoration and life, to restore the people of God back to God. And so then he said to them, verse 10, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord our God. And do not be grieved, here's our verse, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions, to make great rejoicing. Look at this. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And I think for us, be a great month for us to, as we hear God's word, and many of us maybe are convicted of a lot of wrong that our past season has, has been uh, full of, to, uh, to, to take heed to Nehemiah's words, Ezra's words, the book of Nehemiah's words, that God, we have even more reason in Christ to have joy and hope and to understand that God wants to bring about in your life specifically repentance, restoration, revival, renewal, if you would keep his word, right? Because that's what, that's what must be done here. And you'll read that because in, in chapter, if you were to read this, in chapter nine, they confess. In chapter 10, they renew their covenant with God. And so it, it, it would require you to renew this covenant through Christ with God, but allow the, 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 the gospel to, to give you hope that you have renewal, that you have uh, opportunity in the future to, to rejoice and be restored in your relationship with God. So if, if this month, as Jesus is speaking in the book of Luke, it's convicting and it almost makes you want to weep because of your past season of disobedience. Understand that in Christ, we have hope, we have joy, that he can bring about restoration from sin. And in Christ, you have the opportunity to repent and you have the opportunity to renew or even begin a new uh, a covenant with God. So what encouraging words from the book of Nehemiah, huh? Let's read now Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. This one might make us weep. And, um, and this is the passage that God's given us for today. <clears throat> Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Now what we're seeing here is Jesus making clear as he's training his disciples not to build their lives around covetousness or greed. He's, he's 
training his disciples to understand that they shouldn't build their lives on or revolve their lives around wanting more and accumulating more. And we can see here a common theme in what Jesus is doing and what Luke is writing. There's a lot of similarity here to spiritual hypocrisy, which we've been discussing in the text, which is concerned with the outside more than the inside. That's what greed and accumulation of things um, would be as well. The fear of man, same thing. We accumulate these things also for how we look towards others. Covetousness and greed. These are, this is what Jesus is speaking against and training his disciples not to live in. And these things, they're in the same sin family as hypocrisy, spiritual hypocrisy, is what we've been already talking about. Outside, clean. Inside, unclean. And Jesus actually, in describing spiritual hypocrisy, if you remember in Luke chapter 11, verse 39, it says, and the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. This is the spiritual hypocrisy, but the in, on the inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. So we see here that this spiritual hypocrisy and this greed are hand in hand. The spiritual hypocrisy, looking clean on the outside, unclean on the inside, is oftentimes driven by the other thing that Jesus is addressing here, which is greed, not wanting to give up the accumulation of wealth, so therefore I won't repent towards God on the inside and only look religious on the outside. They go hand in hand. And um, so that's why... um, Jesus is training these disciples now not to build their lives on accumulating possessions. But there's a point to why he's telling them that. And this is why I've entitled this this sermon series, or this sermon uh, today, you you can hit that, uh, Devin. Um, Do the abundance of possessions factor into God's judgment? There's a reason why he's telling them not to build the live, their lives on the accumulation of, of stuff. Of, he's, there's a reason why he's training them against greed and covetousness. And, uh, and because it answers this question, do the abundance of possessions factor into God's judgment? And I'm going to explain that to you. Here's the point of what he's saying then. Ready? Having wealth and possessions does not change God's standard of judgment upon someone's life. So having an abundance of wealth and possessions doesn't change how God judges your life. It doesn't affect it um, in how he will determine your eternity. And I'm going to tell you why that factors into what he's doing here. How, How does that, why is he saying that? Having wealth and possessions does not, and we need to understand this, it does not change God's standard of judgment upon my individual life. If I am rich, if I have a lot, it will in no way, shape, or form uh, factor into God's judgment 
of me when I stand before him. It will not matter. So what he's saying here, what we're gonna see, not even if you are successful at accumulating wealth and possessions, do you get to be judged before God by any different measures? In other words, Jesus is saying, beware of all forms of wanting more. Whenever that arises in your heart, because even when someone has accumulated a lot, that's not what will define your life and your soul before God. It's not the contents of your life that he looks at. That's not what he assesses. Instead, he looks at a regenerate heart. He looks at an understanding of the gospel. He looks at a godly life. He looks at him who trembles at his word. He looks at him who, who so clearly thinks about eternity that he's given up his life here on earth for one that really counts. He's given his life to be pleasing to God. He has a whole life geared towards that end. That's what he looks at. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. John 8 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That's what makes you a disciple. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Abiding in his word, knowing the truth, not accumulation of wealth and stuff. John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's what makes us in right standing before God. John 3, 36 says, whoever believes in the Son, of, in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So <clears throat> let's move now into the division of this matter. We're going to look at the headings, divisions of the text that make clear this point that having wealth and possessions does not change God's standard of judgment. Jesus is going to make this clear in two ways. He's going to say this twice in two different ways. Okay? Make clear this proposition. This is the point. Jesus is going to make it clear, first of all, by giving it explicitly in a principle. And then he's going to make it clear by making it clear in a, he's going to make it clear by making it clear in a parable. Okay? In a principle and then in a parable. So let's make, let's make this clear and look at it from the text. Let's take these one at a time. First is the principle. He speaks just in plain principle or doctrine, you could say. Doctrines are principles from the text, right? And they're interwoven into everything. They'll teach you, you know, cl clear doctrine or principles from the scriptures and they'll just be interwoven into everything else that you read. They'll help you interpret the Bible in every scenario. And so there's, this is the, principle here. Wealth, accumulation of possessions do not factor into God's judgment uh, of you. That's the principle. And, uh, and we're going to read it here and then explain it. Verses 13 through 15. 
Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So, so far in Jesus's life and ministry, the crowds have become increasingly volatile up until this point. Okay, the leaven of the Pharisees is spreading, which is false religion, claiming to know God, but not knowing God, right? And the crowds now that are coming are more curious than really anything else, okay? They want to catch him, okay? So you got this false religion going on, and you got these curious Crowds that are not necessarily seeking to know him, but are seeking him um, to, because they're curious about what's going on. Um, and there's a lot of them. Verse 12, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, if we go back to the beginning, when it says, in, if you look at your Bibles, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered, right, that literally means tens of thousands. So he's got tens of thousands of people following him that are curious and the leaven of the Pharisees is spreading, which is false religion, claiming to know God, not knowing God. But some are genuinely trying to decide and some are genuinely trying to follow Jesus at this point. Some believe and that's who he's training. So that's who he's training right now. And the way that he's training is giving them this sermon that's intermixed with speaking to the crowds, and then speaking to the disciples. This sermon or discourse lasts from chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through chapter 13, verse 9. So chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 9, is one long sermon by Jesus. It's one long discourse. And he's got these false religious people, claim to know God, don't know God. Then he's got the tens of thousands of the crowds who are just kind of curious. And then he's got his disciples that he's training and he's giving them this long discourse, okay? And during this discourse from chapter 12, verse one through chapter 13, verse nine, one sermon, you could say, um, it's only recorded in Luke, this portion here, but in this sermon, in this discourse, there's two bewares. There's two bewares. Okay, there's two things that he's training his disciples to beware of. And one of them is spiritual hypocrisy. And the other one is greed. Or covetousness. In fact, as we read in chapter 11, verse 39, part of the spiritual hypocrisy is is the greed, the covetousness. That is why one would choose not to be clean on the inside, but only clean on the outside because they don't want to give up their love for, for money or wanting more. So these go hand in hand, describing their hypocrisy, part of the unclean inside, the refusal to be cleansed from sin by the gospel is driven by greed. I don't want to give up my money. So if you notice that in the world, that's just true. This is a principle from the text. People will reject the gospel because it may require them to repent from living for the accumulation of wealth, right? Um, 
We see things like this, and, and, and you've seen it, but Matthew 19, 21 through 22, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, remember this, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The rejection of Jesus due to greed. And so what Jesus is showing here um, is is that there's, there's really two main things that he's highlighting and emphasizing that for the disciples as he's training them that will prevent a faithful following of him and a trust and belief in his gospel. Really two main things that will stop people from following him. And he's training his disciples in it. It's one, content to clean the outside, see no need to clean the inside. False religion, right? Let's be religious, and that will be enough. Or two, greed, covetousness, a love for the world, turning away because of many possessions, right? And on this, as I was looking at this, uh, Pastor John MacArthur, he makes a note on this that I thought was so really helpful. This, there, there involves here two things, a spiritual deception and a secular deception. There's the religious morality that keeps people from the gospel. So I'll just live a moral religious life. I don't need Christ. And then there's the worldly or the secular material possessions that keep people from the gospel. So the, 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 the spiritual and the secular deceptions, and Jesus is emphasizing both of them here. These are the two main reasons. These are two important reasons that people that his disciples should know of why people will reject the gospel. And really, though, these are not separate because most religious morality hides the unclean inside, as we read in chapter 11, because they are deceptively driven by money and materials. You get that? So most, if I just want to remain religious on the outside, be uncleansed on the inside, most of the time it has to do with because I'm... Um, either blind to or uh, lied to myself enough times or um, hiding explicitly that my internal drive is for money and, and materials, which is why I don't want to be truly cleansed. So the New Testament even describes, to, to, to obviously make this clear, the New Testament describes in many places false teachers telling us to refute them and telling us to beware of them and as most are always being described as driven by monetary gain, right? That's what most are described to be driven by, monetary gain. So you can hear it because this is what a false teacher will, this is what a false teacher will talk about most often. They'll talk about money, Right? That's how you can identify, man, this, these people seem to talk a lot about money. And we have to beware of it because Jesus is saying these are the two things that will prevent people most from, from believing in the gospel. They may call it blessings, best life now, name it and claim it, right? But it's a gospel of prosperity, 
right? That's what it is. And so people don't see it. If, if you're in that world for a little while, you don't see it because either you want the same and so you go along with it or you've never really truly read the word of God for yourself so you don't see where this is off or because it becomes so commonplace that you are in it and you don't see the mess that you're in, which is really how sin works in general. It accumulates slowly. So like if you're in a messy room and then it just gets a little bit more messy and then it just gets a little bit more messy and it just gets a little bit more messy and then before you know it, you're in a messy, a really messy room and you don't realize the mess that you're in. But if you were to come out into the light, blink a little bit, take a step back, someone who's like in the real world would come in and say, brother, you have a real big mess on your hands. <laughs> it, you would see it clearly, right? I was, uh, if you compared it to a clean room, right? You would say, oh, this is a big mess. I was watching Beauty and the Beast with uh, my kids, the, uh, the real life version uh, on Disney Plus. And, um, and I, there was a scene where they were, you know, Belle and the Beast are kind of falling in love for the first time and they're taking a walk out in the snow and they're crossing over the bridge and they're beginning to like each other. And he looks out into the forest and he sees the, the white, snowy, beautiful forest. And he says, it's almost as if I'm seeing this for the very first time, right? His eyes have been open. He's kind of seen reality. He's uh, there's work being done in his, in his heart, right? And, uh, but that's kind of what it's like for us. When we come into the light, we almost begin to see our mess for the very first time. And so, which is also, by the way, why we progress in worship like we do. Because it's only after we see God can we rightly see ourselves, right? And then we rightly see Christ because we need him. And then we want to hear from him and respond in repentance and faith, right? So this is kind of the progression, not to mention that's the progression of the gospel. God is holy. We are sinners. Christ died for us. Repentance and faith. Hear God's word. Respond and live according to it, right? Or Isaiah 6, which is the same pattern of worship. He sees God high and lifted up. He says, woe is me. He, his sin is cleansed and taken away, right? And then God says, who goes for me? Who, who's gonna go for me? And he responds and says, uh, I'll go, right? So with all this being said, this is why we don't see this, this prosperity or this greed driving our hearts because we don't look at it in comparison to, to, to the light, to the word, to, to God, to what the church is supposed to be, to what our lives are supposed to be about or revolve around. And, and so we see that this was true of the Pharisees, Luke 16, 14 through 15. The Pharisees, it just says it clean. And I want you to notice here the combination of spiritual hypocrisy and greed, okay? Look, the Pharisees were what? Lovers of money. The Pharisees, lovers, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus and said to him, and he said to them, I'm sorry, you are those who justify yourselves before men outside, but God knows your hearts inside. Spiritual hypocrisy, greed, hand in hand. Right there, right? So, 
what Jesus is saying here is, is that these are the two things that are going to prevent the disciple from following me. They're almost always connected. You don't want to give up your wealth, and then therefore you're content to look spiritually clean on the outside without faithfulness to the true gospel. False religion and covetousness are the two things that will draw somebody to hell. Material, immaterial. Religious cleanliness, portrayal of morality, and the world, the temptation of the world. Care too much about the world. Greed. So, Let's dissect this just a little bit in the text to make this clear. Verse 13, ready? If you're kind of wondering where we are, now we're just going straight through this text. Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The crowds are trampling over him as we read in chapter 12, verse one, right? The context for this, remember, is one long sermon, right? The spiritual hypocrites, Claim to know God who don't, that don't. Claim to have the truth, but don't. He's warning them. Everything that's hidden will be revealed. Don't worry about what men say. Worry about what God say, who has the authority for judgment. He knows everything, even the hairs on your head. Acknowledge your sinfulness before him. Receive the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't blaspheme it, right? And receive this, this gospel. And then in the midst of this, listen, Stay with me. In the midst of this serious matter, he is speaking of eternal life, his spiritual hypocrisy, damnation, judgment, Holy Spirit, salvation, heaven and hell, God's care. Someone in the crowd, a hearer, speaks up and says, teacher or instructor or rabbi, Tell my brother to divide this inheritance with me. And this is a command. This isn't a question. Okay? And apparently this person is having trouble with his brother about an inheritance. To divide it with him. Right? And so the Jewish law of succession would usually take care of all of this. These issues. Okay, so it's just this is just clean and clear, right? This is just usually the, the 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 Jewish laws take care of this issue. Deuteronomy chapter twenty-one is is the example here, verse seventeen. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, may he not. Uh, he may not treat the son as the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first fruit of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his, meaning this, the firstborn is the firstborn. That takes care of the inheritance issue. Doesn't even matter if you have one wife that you like less than the other wife. Right? That's what it's saying. Okay? So, occasionally, I guess, though, there were f situations where this was unclear. Someone felt that there was an injustice for whatever reason. Maybe firstborn, unclear because of the multiple wives. And anyway, this man speaks up in the midst of the crowd because he's upset, he felt wronged, or he just wants his inheritance. This is mid-sermon of Jesus being clear about salvation, and spiritual hypocrisy. This is a clear picture of greed. This is words of eternal life. But a man is saying, 
when are you going to start talking about what I want you to talk about? When are you going to start talking about what's relevant to me? When are you going to start talking, Jesus, about what's really on my heart, which is my money? He's clearly not grasping the reality of who it is that's in front of him and what he truly offers. See how greed prevents us from seeing the gospel? He couldn't care less about Jesus's words of eternal life. He's not getting his words about spiritual hypocrisy or else the last thing that he would say or make mention of or care about would be his money. He would want what's inside to be clean through the only offer of Jesus that makes him clean. That he's not considering what Jesus offers, but he's considering his wealth. And by the way, this is normal for the rabbis. So if, if he's treating him as a rabbi or a teacher, which he is, this is normal. People have learned to expect that the preachers in this culture speak to them. Make me the center. Right? Nothing has changed. Like, how the Bible tells us nothing new under the sun, right? This is what they've learned to expect. I'm going to come to this Jesus who's actually giving me real words of eternal life. And I'm going to wonder why he's not like the rest of the rabbis talking about me and what I want to fuel my spiritual hypocrisy and my greed. When's this preacher going to start talking about that? Like one sitting in the crowd in church and he can't wait till he's done describing the actual text or talking about salvation and judgment and Christ and the gospel and the Holy Spirit's saving work and, that, and get to something that's relevant to my life as if what he is saying is not the most relevant to his life and eternity. And when it becomes about me and what I want, if he did, he would see that Jesus had the words of eternal life and he would value Christ saying at the end of his life, you're mine and I'm yours. The cross before me, the world behind me, right? If he really understood. But here's the deal. Jesus wasn't a means to an end. Or Jesus wasn't going to be a means to an end. Jesus was a means to an end for this man. Listen, he thought this religious leader, teacher, preacher is supposed to do. Serve my life. He's a means to an end. For me, the savior who claims to be the savior is a means to an end to give me the life that I've always wanted. So I'll choose him. I could choose another way, but I'll choose him. Right now to, to give me something so he can't even keep it in. It's to serve his life, his money. He's not concerned with eternal things, but he's concerned deeply with his life here on earth. Think about that for a second, ready? He's not concerned with eternal things, but he's very, very concerned with his life here on earth. So he wants Jesus to persuade his brother who clearly at this point had possession of it. So his brother's got it and he wants it to, to be divided with him. Um, <clears throat> he doesn't want Jesus, listen, to decide on the merits of his claim, like this is true and I should get it. He just wants Jesus to decide in his favor. Tell him to give it to me. Please make things go how I want them to go. And rabbis would oftentimes flex their authority by giving their own judgments on matters of the law because the, the religious law 
um, was the law, right? So the, the, uh, the rabbis would flex their authority by giving judgments on the law. But listen, Jesus is not interested in solving surface issues. He's not interested here in solving the political, judicial, economic surface issues. He's concerned with solving the heart, salvation, gospel, sanctification issues that will then fix everything. So verse 14, look. But he said to him, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus responds with man, which is not an amiable address. It's equivalent to stranger. I don't know you. Like, dude, right? Bruh. Jesus addresses two issues with this man saying in this verse. Well, in this verse and the next verse. The first is to the man, though he, um, he's coming through Jesus to get the things that he wants. And this is, Jesus is the first thing that Jesus is addressing and rebuking him about is this. This is not why I've came. This is not why I've come to, to earth. I've not come here to do this. I've come here to provide eternal life by God's truth to fulfill the law and the prophets and to glorify my father. That's why I've come. John 18, 27, and Pilate said to him, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born. What purpose was Jesus born? And this purpose I've come into the world. What purpose was it that Jesus came into the world? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus is not, he is a judge. He will judge, the Bible makes that clear, but he will do that spiritually, not to fix the economy for him, for this man. Fix the world with the gospel. The second thing that Jesus is addressing here in verse 15, we'll read it. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The second clear thing that he's saying to his disciples now, he's addressing the man. Listen, he's saying, this is not why I've come. And now he's teaching his disciples. Look at this, ready? He says in verse 15, and he said to them. So the crowds are coming, man comes, and he turns now to his disciples. Remember, training. He's been telling them about spiritual hypocrisy. Now he's telling them about greed with a clear principle. This is similar to what we saw in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember this, when the crowds came and they were all trampling and he began to say to his disciples first. Remember, crowds coming? Disciples, let me tell you something. Here, crowds coming? Disciples, let me tell you something. Right? This is what he's doing here. He's training them. This is the same situation, same pattern. And then there's another pattern that's being shown here. Another pattern, another similarity. And it's the fact that he's turning away from the crowds to the disciples both times in the beginning of the chapter and here. And he's also telling them to beware of something every time he turns to them. Same pattern. I'll tell you something. Uh, let me turn away from the crowds, turn to the disciples, beware. Let me turn away from the crowds, turn to the disciples, beware. And here is this, this is the second time. Remember, beware of spiritual hypocrisy and now beware of greed. These are the two things that would cause them to reject the Holy Spirit's work in agreeing with his gospel. He's warning them, similar to verse 12 
verse one of chapter 12, if you look at it, verse one, it says, beware, okay? He's saying the same thing here. Or 12, five, look at chapter 12, verse five. He says, I will warn you, same thing here. Or 12, 15, right? He's saying in our verse, take care, be on your guard. The NASB translated again, just like 12.1, beware or be on your guard against the second thing that will keep you from being faithful to my gospel. Can I tell you that this is a serious tone? This is a serious tone. You can tell that by him saying this, beware, be on your guard, I'm warning you over and over again. These are the two things that will keep people from eternal life. He's training them. He's telling them what they should be aware of. And can I tell you, by the way, discipleship and, and teaching should involve telling people to beware of things, right? So it may make you feel uncomfortable sometimes, but that's the way to keep you safe, to warn you to make you beware, to, to help you to beware of something. Your discipleship should involve the same thing. Colossians 1.28 says, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Right? So here's, what's, here's what he's saying here in the Greek. It's phuloso. It's a forceful verb. It means this, guard yourself. Like in an army. Be a proactive armsman. Take action. Ward off the enemy. Against what? It says against, in our uh, passage, all covetousness, Jesus is saying. In the Greek, it means this, the desire for more riches. Be on your guard every time, right? Covetousness, greed. Simply put, anytime you want more, Beware of it. Life isn't about, made up of, defined by the accumulation and the fullness of it. And that won't be the measurement before God. Colossians 3, 5 says it's idolatry when it says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. What you own, covetousness, idolatry, stuff that you want. Really, anytime you want more, you should ask, why do I want more? If it doesn't affect my standing before God. This is a good word for us. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. And then here's the, re here's the reason. You ready? Which, which makes clear the point that we said earlier. Verse 15, for, I've just been walking through the text, for, meaning this, here's why. Okay, for gives the grounds. It either gives the, gro it gives the grounds or the reasoning for what he's saying. For, Right? And I'm more comfortable with the NASB's rendering of this. So I'm going to put that up on the screen. It says this. Here's what it says in the ESV. Let me read it first. Could, but it could be confusing. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
But here's what the verse 15 says in, in the NASB. It's on the screen. He said to them, beware and be on your guard against all forms of greed and every form of greed. For, ready? Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So even when you gain a lot, your life is not defined by your possessions, meaning before God. This is a salvation issue. This is a, this is a, this is a right standing before God issue. What Jesus is saying here, is that not what gives you real life? That's not what gives you life. That's not what gives you eternal life. Wanting more? Even for those who have a lot, for those who have a little, same thing. Makes no difference. Life before God, death, eternity will not be determined by the abundance of possessions. In other words, it's not like because you have more wealth or possessions, your life, your death, your eternity will be determined by any other thing than God's standards or God's words in the gospel. Someone who is wealthy on earth isn't exempt or measured by new standards. Even when one has a lot, it doesn't make you now qualified to be judged by different standards before God, right? So therefore, beware of greed of every kind because it accomplishes nothing before God. Right? God can use wealth for good, but beware when you want more because it really doesn't accomplish anything of your standing before God. So why do you want it? not consist of, meaning these aren't factors by God that he, that he checks for, assesses for, determines, looks at, expects. Beware of wanting more. It doesn't do anything for you. Why do you want it? And oftentimes what Jesus say, is saying here is oftentimes the desire, if you're just really honest, is just for yourself. And we can, we can put a mask on it or a costume on it that says it's for really good things, but we, we really know it's just for myself. And why should we be aware of it? Jesus exposing it. It's for yourself. And how do we know that it's for ourselves? We'll look at even down to verse 21 at the end of our, at the end of our passage. So, this, so is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. So, so is the one who lays up treasures for who? Verse 21, lays up treasures for who? Himself. It's for himself. So does God bless those who work hard and in their hearts it's for the Lord? Yes. And will he use it for his mission and his cause? Yes, but be careful because many of us say that, but that's not reality. Right? Do we give it to the, to, to the missions, to church, to the personal? Do, do we maintain personal devotion? Do we maintain community? He does bless in that way, but the issue is how it affects or blinds you from your relationship with God and of seeking God and being used actually for his glory and his mission through the local church. Like, does it really do that? 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10 says this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So <clears throat> the issue is not having as God provides. Plenty of wealthy people are in the Bible. But the issue is, 
Is it for the sake of his gospel? And what is it doing in distracting you from your relationship with God? And then ultimately it prevents the world from even surrendering to Christ and the gospel in the first place. Jesus is saying here, beware of any time that you want more, right? Um, in no way factors into God's assessment of your life. It might factor into man's assessment of your life, which is why spiritual hypocrisy and greed are going hand in hand here. It really might make you look good on the outside. But in just a little while, it's not gonna matter when that sky cracks and that trumpet sounds, all right? So John 10, 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life. The money can't give you life. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's not what's gonna give you your life. So he moves into this, the, way to, the second way to make this clear. Um, we got about 10 minutes to, to divide it. So we're on good pace here, okay? That's just, well, it's a pretty easy parable. But the second way he shows this truth is through a parable. Parable is made up of two words, para, bole, or two parts of, of the word. There's two parts of the word, para, bole. Bole means to place. And para means alongside, right? So like a parachurch organization like Campus Outreach is, it's a parachurch organization that comes alongside the church, right? To accomplish the, the means or the ends of the church. A parable comes alongside a principle to, um, to it's placed alongside the, princi the principle to, to make it clear, right? To illustrate that principle. So let's read 16 through 21. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will, have, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. So what we see here in verse 16, in verse 16, he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. The land of the rich man Literally in the, NA, in the NASB, again, more comfortable with that here, says the land was very productive. Okay, operative word, the land. So listen, as I said earlier, sometimes God determines that this is something that uh, he blesses with. The land was, was productive. God determined. He opened up the, the floodgates, as we say. He made the land productive. There's no problem at this point, right? God determined where he would settle. Acts 17 says he made one man from every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. God determined that this man would live on this land and he determined that this land would be very productive. So God blessed here, the verb, very productive. You pronounce it uh, euphoreto, it means yields a good crop, which is interesting because uh, uh, as I was researching this, this is where we get the, the English word euphoria. It comes from, in that, 
That, that doesn't refer to having a good crop, but isn't it interesting that the word euphoria, meaning like to be elated, comes from a word that means produced a good crop, right? So the elation, so you can see where there's an elation when we're successful, when we get money, when we accumulate stuff, when we have more possessions, right? Which is going back why the prosperity gospel works. Because you sit in church and you hear a message about more crops being produced in your life and you're elated and you say, it's the work of God. I feel the Holy Spirit. No, you feel elation because there's more crops being produced, right? Here's the point. At this point, there's nothing bad. God's giving the crop. It's not in this man's control. It's in God's right? Spiritual things are described in the same way, shedding light on this truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants the, through whom you served as the Lord assigned, uh, whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you're God's field, God's building. This is a spiritual truth, but it illustrates the physical truth that God gives the growth, right? Um, Job 37, 11 through 13, look at this, ready? He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. For correction, whether for correction or for his land, there it is, or for love, he causes it to happen. So remember last week when I told you in the beginning of our memory verse that the Bible actually tells us everything, why we should eat, why we should sleep, and why, how we should drink. It also tells us why rain comes, right? It comes either for correction, somehow he's correcting us through rain for his land, or it comes for love, somehow it's love towards us. That's why he causes it to happen. That's why rain comes, Right? So God caused the land to grow here, but here's where it turns bad, okay? Think about this in the story. If this man feared God at this point, there would be a possibility for him to keep God first, truly give abundantly towards Christ's gospel going forth, um, give it back to God because he's the love of his life. He wants others to know the gospel. He wants the word to keep going forth. He wants to enjoy the fruit of his labor for all of eternity, he doesn't want it to just sit in his barns where he can just look at it and, and accumulate more wealth. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities here. But this man decides, verse 17, thought to himself, what shall I do? I know what I shall do. Thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. So in the NASB, it says this, he began reasoning with himself. Like, there's no one else around. I'm just gonna start reasoning with myself as to what I should do because I'm, I'm getting a lot of crops here, right? It's like you just begin to reason with yourself. No one else is really, that's spiritual, is speaking into your life about it, just reasoning with yourself. That's a dangerous place to be. And then if you notice from verses 17 through 19, in the Greek, there's four my's and there's eight I's. It's all about my, it's all about I, right? He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will store, the, store my grain. I will say to my soul, right? Same thing. 
what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. I'll say to myself, he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns. So it's, it's, it's all about him, right? And then verse, nine, uh, verse uh, 18, he says, this is what I will do, right? I will do this. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones. So he's reasoned to himself and he's, he's convinced himself that it's right and it's good. And so that's what he does. And um, in verse 19, then it switches and he says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I, I really, I think it's interesting that this different language now is used by Jesus. He stops talking about I and my, and he starts talking about it in regards of this man's soul. Listen, stay with me. We're almost done. There's something deeper going on here, right? That's the indication here. There's something deeper going on. He's saying to my soul, my soul, right? He's saying whether this man knows it or not, he's believing something deeper. When he's choosing to retire, he's saying to his soul, soul, right? So something deeper is going on. It's not just on the surface. What is that? Well, he's saying this in verse 19. Basically, things are all good. Things are all good because of, listen, because of what I've accomplished here on earth. They must be all good. Things are, are all good because of what I've accomplished here on earth. They must be all good. And this is where we get to the point of this. That that's folly, assuming that things are all good before God, assuming your eternal life, assuming you have many more years, assuming that God's standards are the world's standards. This very night, you might meet God, all of you. Tonight, you might meet God. That's a real possibility for everyone in this room. And wealth will not affect God's judgment of your life for all of eternity. It's foolish to think that things are all good because you've accomplished wealth on this earth. That's what he's saying here. No God, no gospel, not, no contemplating the brevity of life, deceived because earthly wealth somehow makes him think that all things are good. Verse 20, you can believe his own words, but... What God's words, that's why I told you in comparison to God, he's believed his own words, but God says fool, meaning this, without knowledge of the truth. And I'm gonna try to close this here, but he said this very night is required of you. Let me just tell you what that means. Literally is um, this very night, they require. This is a common phrase among the rabbis. It refers to Elohim, God, who's plural, Trinity, they require, meaning tonight, this was a, a common phrase by the rabbis for an action of God. Tonight, God is gonna take it and you're gonna give your soul to him and he's gonna decide what to do with it. And then who will the things that you prepared be? Like, that's gonna be the concern. Um, but 
but at the very least, they won't be any credit to you in heaven. In verse 21, Jesus says, so is the one, meaning the fool is a fool. So is the one who is, he's a fool who doesn't consider God's judgments, right? Didn't consider eternally what was important. Built a life off of greed and covetousness, thinking it would define his life and is not rich towards God. Not meaning generous, meaning rich in God's eyes, which is through the gospel. He doesn't, he doesn't judge in the same way man does. So church, take care and be on your guard about all forms of wanting more. For even if we have more, it doesn't define our lives before God. We must ask and may do well to honestly ask, what is it really for? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I ask you, Lord, that you would take your word and uh, apply it to our lives and our hearts so that we might follow exactly what it says. That we would leave changed people and the rest of our lives would be different because of what your word has spoken to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.